we're on a little journey in our, on our campus, in our congregation, on uh, understanding the Sabbath. I, last week, came to picture, and I told, <laughs> told one of my friends, so this is a game changer for me. Uh, some, I, I, last week, in my studies on the Sabbath, came to realize its depth and its layout like I had never seen it before. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11, outlines the Sabbath. That's the, f- that's the first declaration of the law, at least as it is recorded in its, in its entirety. Then the book of Deuteronomy records the second from all ten of the commandments as referred to them. All ten of the commandments. Deuteronomy, which is, of course, that's what it means, the second, Deuter, and then Deuteronomy, the, the second repeating or the second telling of the law. The, the two commandments are slightly different in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. One starts in, in uh, Exodus, it starts with what? Remember. In Deuteronomy, anybody know? Oh, oh, observe. Remember and observe. Completely different words. And you would figure if Moses had the tablets that were inscribed with the very the words and the finger of God, you would have thought he probably would have got like stayed stayed on on uh, on cue on he would have quoted it exactly. But in in both instances he he uses a different word to at least introduce it. Uh, remember the the rabbis will tell us is a very uh, positive like celebrate it celebrate it observe is a is a challenge to guard against and they and and the traditional thinking at least the jewish rabbinical thinking is that it took both words to actually communicate what God was trying to say, both by there's some things you need to celebrate with, with study and with good food, but then there's also, in order, to, in order to celebrate it, there's things you have to guard against, and so it's this, this kind of push-pull that puts us in the center of, of, of what the Sabbath was supposed to be. Another difference between Exodus and Deuteronomy was that Exodus cites the creative event or creation as the reason, kind of the foundation for why the Sabbath should be celebrated. And Deuteronomy notes it as their freedom from Egypt, their salvation as why. And so the Sabbath becomes this perfect picture uh, between creation and recreation, the salvation and creation experience. But there is one one singular similarity between uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy that is very significant. And this is something that I had never, I I guess I'd always kind of hung it in the back of my mind, but I never thought that the Bible was so incredibly cogent about this. And this is it. That the, the six days... Now, we, we quote it all the time. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work but the seventh. So that's in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. And the form of that is because the six days were supposed to support the seventh day. In other words, uh, the six days were, in, were, were to build up, as it were, the planning and the event and the experience so that the seventh is a celebration. Now, Sabbatarians, let me just challenge you on this. How do we treat the seventh day? I'll tell you how, how I've often treated it and how those in my community have often referred to it as uh, lines like this. Whew, I'm sure glad it's Sabbath. I can rest. I can just... And, and, uh, and Abraham Heschel, Joshua Abraham Heschel, the, the renowned Jewish scholar, says we have treated Sabbath like an interlude as if it were to prepare us like beasts of burden to get ready for the new week of work. We treat it as if it's there so that we can survive and, and go into another six, uh, another six days. It's not that at all. We are using the Sabbath to honor six days. 
And Heschel is, actually, is spot on. We as Sabbatarians have taken the Sabbath from being this beautiful climax of living to saying, I am now a beast of burden. It is, it is, it, that one day now provides the other six instead of six days forward to the seventh day. Do you catch the little nuance there? I had never seen it. Amen. Okay, so that has nothing to do... We, I was just hearing the happy Sabbath and I was thinking, wow, I've just been, my whole life, six days. We, we've heard this before, you know, Friday preparation day. But actually the Sabbath, it's not so concerned about the preparation day as it is the whole six days leading up to the celebration of the, of the seventh and Sabbath day. Okay. So here's where we want to go tonight. Thank you for bearing with me. Uh, for me, that was a game changer. And in our home, we, we said, well, what can we do? What if we divide the Sabbath into seven parts? What are seven things that have to be done in order to get the, to the, the Sabbath experience? And what if we do one of them every day so that starting from Sunday, we are already building this experience to the Sabbath? That was our little journey in our home, saying, man, we've got a, six days we're there to support the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the climax. It's not a, it's not a, okay. It's actually the day we're supposed to, we've been living for six days. Okay, you've got it. Amen. Father, bless us one more time as we open your word. Thank you for the Sabbath. Thank you that you have spent six days preparing for this special moment with us. And now as we open your word, have your way with our hearts and our minds. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, there is an, uh, an oft, it's almost as if it's, it's we've, we've all thought it, but we've never really talked about it. Maybe you have, but many have not talked about it. And even in the pastoral circles and preachers that I've spent time with, it's not often uh, recognized or at least, at least titled. But that is... The, the idea that within the narratives of Scripture, a narrative, a story, there is theology. Okay? We've all kind of, we can, okay, so there's stories in the Bible. They're not there for our entertainment. Certainly they're there to kind of guide us through the historical events. But there, it's more than just stories for the sake of, of recording history. That's fair, right? We've all kind of concluded that. So there's, it's a term that's actually called narrative theology. That is, you read a story and there is a theological truth that is in that story, much like a, a plain, thus saith the Lord, except it's embedded in, in a narrative, in a story. There's also what is understood as narrative prophecy. And that is this idea that through a story is birthed this prophetic statement, apocalyptic or otherwise. Uh, often uh, there, were, there were individuals, individuals that were given a prophetic role even by their name. So that's, that's it's, it's not new, this is not new, but it's, it's something that we haven't always put our, our, our thumb on to say, oh, that's what this is. One of the, one of the most, one of the worst offenders in this narrative uh, prophecy are the narratives or the stories found in the book of Daniel. I've taken... Uh, my own journey to say, come on, there's got to be, there's, 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 there's something here. So we're going to take three narratives of the book of Daniel, the, the primary three. Daniel chapter one, it's a story of, of Daniel and his three friends making the decision on, on diet. It's really a bigger picture, but we'll get there tomorrow morning. Then there's Daniel chapter three, which is the story of the three worthies. Right, that 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's where we're going tonight. And then there's Daniel chapter 6. And what's Daniel chapter 6? The lion's den, right? But apart from those three stories and a few pictures, Nebuchadnezzar's journey and his, his fall and then restoration, apart from these narratives, what is the book of Daniel largely comprised of? Prophecy. All right. So we can, we can, we're going to make a few assumptions, but we're just so we're refreshing our, our position here. So here in the book of Daniel, a very prophetic book, and not just prophetic uh, in, in Daniel's time or in his, his generations or even the generations that followed him, even up through Christ, but we, we understand Daniel to be a very apocalyptic book. And if I'm, am I in the right place? Okay, good. We understand it to be a very apocalyptic book, but we've often, many of us, I say, have read the narratives in the book of Daniel as if they were just stories sprinkled throughout the, the beast and the image. And then, well, there's a little story there. That's that's pleasant, right? It kind of breaks up the prophecy. But what if the narratives of Daniel are not just stories to break up the beast and the image? What if there's something more to them? And so that's what I want to invite you on tonight. So Daniel chapter, we're going to Daniel chapter 2 tonight, Daniel 2 and 3, and we're going to jump back to Daniel chapter 1, no particular order, just kind of the way we, uh, we spotted it out for the, the Sabbath. But we're going to go to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. We know this dream. Beloved, we've, we've, we've heard this dream for years, right? It's the opening item. Any evangelistic series you've been to, or most evangelistic series you've been to, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And uh, he loses sleep over it. Now, we've always said it's because... He couldn't remember. That's not exactly borne out in the text. But that's beside the point. He calls the, the magicians and the, the sorcerers. And he says, I want to know what this dream is. Well, what it means. It's so profound. So something's bothering me. All right. So he has this dream. We, we, we're familiar with it. Now jump down to verse 28. Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. We're going to follow along a little bit on the screen, but, but it would do us well to just have our Bibles open. Daniel here then tells the king his dream and the interpretation. And he says in verse 28, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. In the latter days, if I believe in your new King James, your dreams and visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in your bed are these. And then he goes on to tell them. Two key points in verse 28 as Daniel opens up to King Nebuchadnezzar. One, God in heaven. Daniel loved that term. God in heaven, God in heaven, God in heaven. He's not, he does not use the typical Jewish expression of the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He uses this very, very comprehensive term, God of heaven. Of course, he's speaking to a non-Jew, but he's speaking in a wider sense to all of us, the God of heaven, this universal God, because he's talking about things that are not just local. He says, look, look God has revealed to you the mysteries of what will happen in the end, all the way to the end, King You've seen the journey of history before its history. Now hang that on a hook in your mind. Because that's what Daniel is saying is, is going to be played out here. Now we know that. We've got the Babylon, the Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome. We've, we, 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 just, yeah, we know that. And then the rock cut out without hands. Well, let's jump down to that. Verse 44. But you're hanging a hook on your mind that this is, a, this is a comprehensive picture of God and he's talking about the latter days, the end of time. 
Verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Wait, 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 wait. Stop, 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 stop. In, 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 in when? In the time of those kings. So during, during these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms, bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. Daniel is setting something up here way more than just Babylon, Rome, divided Rome. He's setting something else. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. We're going to go somewhere. So just, just keep tracking. Daniel is talking about, look, it's the end of time. And during the time of those kings, at the very end, God will set up his kingdom. Now, if you like me, we've always read that to say, well, when that, when that rock, that second coming, that's the moment he sets up his kingdom. That's when during the time of these kings... But the verse almost invites you to understand that during, while they exist, while they are there, his kingdom will intrude. It's not a stop and, they start, and his kingdom starts, but it's almost an interruption. During their experience, during those kings, during the time, his kingdom will be set up. And then they will end but his kingdom will endure forever. Do you, do you catch this, this, this hint of an overlap? We've always read Daniel 2 to say, all right, there comes a moment when the sky is split and then they end and his kingdom begins. But Daniel says, no, no, no. During their time, he will, he will bring his kingdom, then they will end but his won't. All right. One more verse in Daniel chapter 2, because you know the dream, and, and you know the, the, the timeline of these, these kingdoms. I'm not arguing with that at all. This Daniel chapter 2, though, begins to set us up for the narrative of Daniel chapter 3. One more verse in Daniel chapter 2. Verse, uh, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 46. Am I right? Nope. 48. 49. Nope, it is 46. All right. Then King Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, we've got two more verses. That's right. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. King Nebuchadnezzar fell down and treated him as a deity. That's, that's the whole incense. Now, wait a minute. If you know what's coming in Daniel chapter 3, then you're already catching the linguistic ties, the, 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 little, the little connectors that are saying, hey, there is something that the... Remember, they didn't have the, the footnotes. They didn't do uh, highlighting. and uh, They just used the tools in their writing to connect one with the other. And when you come to Daniel chapter 3, you will find that, whoa, wait a minute. It's all about falling down and worshiping something as a deity. So Daniel chapter 2 is already pointing forward. Now, one more verse. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 49. Linguistic pointer there in verse 46. But verse 49, it's the last verse of chapter 2, and it's it's a, I mean, Hollywood takes a play right out, of, right out of this book when it leaves us on a cliffhanger. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the providence of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Daniel chapter 2 ends introducing us or reintroducing us to the three friends of Daniel. Why? except that they're about to play a key role in this prophecy. 
Daniel chapter 2. This prophecy about the God of heaven telling Nebuchadnezzar what's going to happen at the end of time. Now, Daniel chapter 2 ends with this cliffhanger and just says, hey, by the way, let me introduce you to three others. Wouldn't mean anything except all of a sudden they're on the stage. And you would know if this was Hollywood and they introduced in a, in a suspenseful way three more characters you, and then the screen went black. You would say, ooh, they're setting something up for the next one. Those three. What about those three? So the question has to, demands itself. What about those three? That's where Daniel chapter 3 comes in. That's the story. It's their story. Daniel chapter 3, you know this story. King Nebuchadnezzar gets really excited about that image of gold and he sets it up 90 some feet tall. Invites all of his leaders. You, you read in verse 2, it won't be on the screen, but you read in verse 2, the satraps, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the province officials to come to the dedication, to the, to the inaugural worship of this golden image. So three, we've just been, the, the cliffhanger in, in chapter two, of course, was that the three were appointed as administrators. So they're going to be there. It's set up perfectly. There's a plot. Now, they, they tell them about the music, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music. You'll fall down and worship. Verse 16 now. The three worthies do not do that. They do not worship. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him. So they get, they get called before the king. Hey, king. King wants to know why you're not doing this. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. We have no hesitation. We have no pause to, to answer this question. Verse, verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing fiery furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. Verse 18, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, there is a catchy little line in here that I had never reflected on before. Right before we will not worship the image of gold you have set up, there is a line that is repeated three times in this chapter. We will not worship your gods or will not serve your gods. Quince, it's repeated not by the same people, but it's repeated by three different people. Almost as if they overheard each other, but no, it's as if Daniel is trying to make a point. You know, the first person, the first people to 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 use that line are actually the tattletales, the ones that come and say, hey, king, you know those Hebrews? They're not going to worship your gods nor the golden image. They're the first ones to come up with it. And then when Nebuchadnezzar calls the three Hebrews, he says to them, are you, not, are you, are you refusing to worship my gods and, the, and bow down to the golden image? And then when they respond to him, they say, we don't have to be careful about that. We don't need any time to think this over. There's no pause on our part. We are not going to worship your gods nor bow down to your image. Beloved, the, the writer, Daniel, is unpacking something here. For us. He doesn't have the idea, the, the opportunity to bold it or to underline it or to highlight it, all he can do is use it over and over and over and over. This is not about a single instance of that golden image. That golden image is, re, is, is set, said to be secondary. We will not serve your gods or worship this image. They don't serve your gods or will, and they won't fall down to this image. It, it's secondary almost. It's, it's just one example of how they aren't going to to worship or to serve the gods, little g, of King Nebuchadnezzar, of Babylon, of the culture. Now it's talking about something much bigger than a, a, a little situation. 
you, you've, no doubt, you've talked about this story. Come on, we've talked about it. You've said, you know, if I had been there, I would have been tempted to, uh, to, to, you know, just bow over and tie my shoes. Right? You've, come on, we've all talked about that. You know, you're talking about this story. Uh, oftentimes people have referred to it as, you know, it's, it's a lot like being in a restaurant, being willing to bow your head. And, you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable, but be brave. Bow your head. Show honor to God. Yes, but no, it's so much bigger and so much more comprehensive and so much more involved than a simple physical act. We've, we've limited it to this, this image and this, this event, but they didn't. Not the tattletales, not King Nebuchadnezzar, not the Hebrews. Nobody was saying, oh, it's, this is a situation. They were all addressing it's a bigger problem. They won't worship our gods. And Daniel chapter 3 is in the context of Daniel chapter 2. There are so many ties, not the least of which, obviously, is the image. Tying Daniel chapter 3 to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 3 is not a totally different story or just a, or just a, 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 a leap, a, just a reflection of the image. It is the same story. Daniel chapter 2 lines out the political scene. Daniel chapter 3 lines up the spiritual And Daniel's word to King Nebuchadnezzar in, in chapter 2 was that this vision that you have, this dream that you had, extends to the very end of time. And then Daniel chapter 3 plays itself out, demonstrating what it would be like at the very end of time. What did they say? We don't have to be careful to you. We're not going to worship your gods. We won't live the way you want us to live. We won't do what you want us to do, what culture expects us to do. And God will deliver us. He is able, but if he doesn't, we still won't serve your gods. Or the golden image, by the way, that you've set up. What does that remind you of? It reminds me of Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. Oh, we've, did we already skip Revelation chapter 12? No, I've got more to, more to tell you about Revelation chapter... Okay. They triumphed over, the, over him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. No, but I've got, I've got something else here to point out to you. Jump back, jump back, jump back. Ooh, this is good. This is good. Go back to Daniel chapter 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. Oh, this is really good. King Nebuchadnezzar became furious, and his attitude toward them changed. Will there be another time in history where a being will become furious with a faithful group of people and his attitude will change? Oh, you know what we're talking about. Now, now let's go to Revelation chapter 12. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That is almost an exact reflection of the three worthies. Now verse, now keep reading. Verse 12. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury. He's furious because he knows that his time is short. <laughs> Revelation chapter 12, verse 12 indicates, and, and the rest of 12 at one point, the devil is almost indifferent to the people of God. That's when he stands before the woman waiting for the man-child. He doesn't care about the woman, the faithful of God, because he wants Jesus. But now that Jesus, he's taken to the throne of God, 
He's removed. Satan can't get to him. He turns his attention to the faithful people of God. And his attitude toward them changes. Revelation chapter 12. The devil's attitude toward the faithful changes. Just like Daniel chapter 3 with Nebuchadnezzar and the faithful. Beloved, Revelation chapter 12 and Daniel chapter 3 are cousin expressions of what happens at the very end of time. Daniel chapter 3 is a prophetic narrative. It's Daniel chapter 2 sets it up. I'm going to ask you a question and you don't even have to answer it. It's a bit rhetorical, but not completely. What is God more concerned about? The political landscape or the spiritual landscape? Daniel chapter 2 is, is a political description to set up the scenario for Daniel chapter 3. And it's a tragedy that a Seventh-day Adventist, as Bible prophecy students, that we have so long isolated Daniel chapter 2 from Daniel chapter 3. They were meant to go together. Now, just bear with me a bit longer. There's something here that, that tripped me up. Daniel chapter 3 is about the... And, and if, if it's true which I believe with all my heart that it is, that Daniel chapter 3 is not just a narrative, not just a, by the way, let me tell you a story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but rather it is a narrative prophecy of how the faithful will be living at the very end of time. If in fact it is, then the primary concern in Daniel chapter 3 was that the faithful did not serve the gods, little g, of the culture around them. That's what's repeated three times by the tattletales, by Nebuchadnezzar himself, and then by the three, three worthies. It's the primary concern of Daniel chapter 3. But as, as, a, as a part of the prophetic movement of God, I believe the Seventh-day Adventist Church was raised up as a prophetic movement, not as, a, not as an elite saved group. We have a message to bear to our brothers and sisters in all denominations and in all religions. Not at all are we, are, do we have some sort of some easy access or backdoor at, VIP access to the kingdom of... We just have a prophetic message. We've been raised up. As a part of that, it seems to me like we have largely skipped over the second commandment. What's the second commandment? Do we, I think we have it. Huh? Keep going. Just, it, it will, it will come up. Oh! We'll talk about him in a minute. No, let's go. Exodus chapter, Exodus chapter 20. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Keep reading. Verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I, I, love, I love that little contrast between verse 5. Ooh, the third and fourth generation if you're disobedient to the commandment, but if you're obedient, I will show love to thousands of generations. It's just this drastic comparison between what God is able to do with, faith, with those who are faithful. But, but let's go back to the kind of the crux of the, of the commandment. I, I want to talk about this a bit more tomorrow afternoon uh, if we get time. But are you aware that the, that the law, the Ten Commandments, is not a biblical expression? It's not a Hebrew or Greek expression. The, the, the biblical expression, and even the way God introduces the, the Ten Commandments, is he, uh, in Exodus, is he spoke all of these words. words. And the Hebrew expression for the law is decalogue. Decalogos, ten words. This this. Ten Commandments, the, t the, the law, is, is much, much more of an English expression when it comes to the, the Ten Commandments. Now, there is, it, it does, 
Now we're going on a, on a different direction, but this is very powerful, very powerful. The Bible sees what we call the Ten Commandments, which is kind of cold in my, it's, it's kind of just a cold, sterile language, the Ten Commandments. It sees it as ten words of a covenant, ten commitments that two parties make towards each other. And that's the expression of the, uh, of the Ten Commandments in Hebrew and, and in Greek. We will probably not get there even tomorrow. But it's this, this expression of, of we're in a covenant. So when it comes to the second commandment, the second word of the Decalogue, most of us, Exodus chapter 20, we read it. Don't make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heaven above or the earth beneath. Some of you may have artistic abilities uh, and maybe artistic abilities in this area. I have none. I have no ability, not artistic. I, I can't have some artistic expression, but I cannot carve something, okay? Rock, stone, metal, uh, nearly, <laughs> I nearly fail at Play-Doh, okay? So it's pretty, this commandment almost does not apply to me because I have almost no abilities in the, uh, when it says don't make for yourself an image, don't form anything, I'm like, no problem, right? I can't do it. But I live in Loveland, Colorado, which happens to be the center of, of bronze sculpturing. I have... I have three members in my church that are professional, uh, many of which, well, at least several of which have sculptures on this campus. And they're, they're members of, because Loveland is the center of it. They have, they have whole gardens with sculptures and whole, uh, <laughs> one, of, one of my church, I love this man, uh, he, he, he said, look, you know, I, I, I'd like to make a donation to the church. Uh, Here's a sculpture. It's like in the offering plate, right? Uh, except it was after church. He, you know, he just said, hey, tie the envelope. Here's my offering to the church. So it, Loveland is... It, so I'm, I'm thinking to... I, I, am, I have a church full of sinners, right? Because they're all sculptures forming statues. This campus is evil. Can we edit this? <laughs> you get what I'm saying? Either we, we've, we've just kind of passed this off. Oh, yeah, no, don't make for yourselves a sculpture. It says, by the way, it's not just bowing down to them, but it's also forming them. Don't form them and don't bow down to them. So they're in Loveland We've got a lot of converting to happen. Or are we talking about something different? And that's where that statue came in. What is that statue? Uh, the world's largest statue last year was unveiled there in India. Uh, I do my best to pronounce Sardar Vayabhai Patel. That's the statue. Largest statue in the world. It's nearly 600 feet tall. Comparison with, with King Nebuchadnezzar's 90-foot statue or like Cristo Redentor is 92 feet maybe uh, in height. So this statue, 600 feet in, there in India, is just quite phenomenal. One of their historical... He brought the, brought the states of India together, unified the states, Patel did. So quite, a, quite, a, quite an individual. But is that what we're talking about? Because if that's what we're talking about, then most of us could just skip right over this. And we could read right over Daniel chapter 3 and say, I'm, I, I have no interest in falling down to an image. And I certainly am not. I, I don't do it. I don't do it. Wait a minute. But is that all it's talking about? Here's, here's the catch. Daniel, oh, yeah, there you go. There's Patel. You got your Bibles open. We can put it on the screen. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5. 
It's in the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And then the next line, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And right there is clear declaration that this is more than a simple law, that it is a covenant, a relationship, because jealousy does not happen with law. Okay? For example... Uh, you, you get stopped for speeding. And you say to the officer, I know I, I just transgressed the law of the land here, but I want you to know that I, I am keeping the law in Russia, and there's a law in Russia, you, that it, it's illegal to drive a dirty car. Okay, I looked it up. I had to find, what's, what's a law in Russia? somewhere it's probably stacked in the in the thousands of laws like we have here and they have there there's a law that says you cannot drive a dirty car so if you were to tell the police officer right here in Loma Linda or Redlands or maybe a, a, a highway patrol uh, you would say look I know I broke this law but I, and I'll try to do better but I want you to know I am keeping the law of Russia look my car is clean he would, he would, nor the governor, nor anybody at any level would, would feel any sort of, huh, we're jealous. You, you, you're, you're also keeping someone. In other words, as long as that law does not transgress the laws of the land, you're fine. You can keep as many laws as you want as long as none of them transgress the laws of where you're at. Nobody cares. But if I said to my wife, look, it won't take away any time from you and me, but I am also going to have a separate interest in another person. It won't interfere with our journey. You will still get all of my paycheck. You will still get all of my love. But I'm going to, I'm also going to love, you know that that doesn't, that, what insanity you talking about you can't do that and she would be jealous because a relationship does not work like a law and we have far too long written off the ten commandments as a law that if you could just check it off i don't have any images by the way of course the 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 question becomes whether is is that a three-dimensional image or a two-dimensional image Muslims would argue that the two-dimensional two is, is the same as a three-dimensional. But we far too long just said, well, the second commandment, I, I don't have any graven images. I'm not bowing down to anything. But right in the second commandment is the expression that this is more than a law. It's a, it's a covenant. It's a relationship between us and God. First, second, the second commandment, along with the fourth commandment and the tenth commandment are by far the longest and most wordy commandments of all the commandments. Leading many commentators and many theologians to, to stop and say, if God used so many words, he's writing with his finger, right? That often, they say, this seems to indicate that it's an area of particular interest or concern. And here in the second commandment, most of us, at least in this side of the world and in this denomination, have just written it off as that's not, that doesn't pertain to me. You see where we have. But Daniel chapter 3 brings it right to the surface and right to our faces and says, you've got to consider this because it is a concern for the people at the end of time. That second commandment. You remember Isaiah chapter 44, where it talks about, where God kind of makes, makes light of this whole graven image idea, where, where he says, the workman will go get a log, and he'll bring it home, and then, He'll cut it in half, and half he will use to warm himself and to cook his food, and the other half he will, he will form into an image and then call it his God, right? You, Isaiah 44, this, God kind of becomes a little 
he makes fun of it. But the point he drives at is that false gods do two things. They insult man. They insult the intelligence of man. Look, if you have to make your own God and he comes off of, what if you get the wrong end? What if you burn the end that's supposed to be the God and, and then you form... In Isaiah 44, if you haven't read it, it's just God at his... He's very witty in Isaiah 44. And he just says, well, this, it insults your intelligence if you think something like that is your God. And that it insults the honor of God. That this, this thing has to be moved. He says, you have to pick it up and you have to put it somewhere. It can't go there itself. He said, it insults God and it insults man. Isaiah 44. But is that all? Do we just need to be careful that there's no, no images? Let's, let's jump to a couple of texts here and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll tie it into a nice little package. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Deuteronomy, I, it's going to be on the screen here, but Deuteronomy chapter 27. And verse 15. 27 and verse 15. Cursed is anyone who makes an idol a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of skilled hands, and sets it up in secret. Underline that word. So I want you to catch that. Cursed. That's pretty strong language. This is the, by the way, this is what the, the you remember that the, the Levites would, would gather on the two hills and they would recite the cursings and the blessings over Israel. Cursings if you disobeyed and blessings if you did. And this is what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 5 when he went onto the mountain and began to bless the people. They knew exactly what he was doing. The Mount of Blessings. He was doing what the Levites had done. And Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is Jesus' longest recorded sermon. And it is the New Testament reflection on the covenant, the law. So, so for anybody that says, yeah, the law is not a big thing for Jesus or the New Testament, I know that's none of us here, but... The longest, most appreciated, loved sermon of Jesus is on the covenant, is on the law. But this is what they're, they're doing. The Levites are, are saying, cursed if you disobey. Cursed is anyone who makes an idol a, a thing detestable to the Lord. Strong language. The work of skilled hands. It's skilled. It's, it's, it's nice, but it's, it's, it's a detestable thing and sets it up in secret. So the people would steal away, right? And hide their, their images as if God didn't see it. That was really their thinking. They would hide them away so that they could do something where they felt like they weren't being watched by God. So they would hide them away in the forest. Now Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51. Does anybody remember what Psalm 51 is besides the Psalm of David? What, what event is it reflecting on? Yeah, David's sin. Not just adultery, but murder. Psalm 51. So now he's, he's, he's reflecting, he's confessing his sin to God, Psalm 51 and verse 6. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. And it's the exact same word that Deuteronomy employs to say they would hide their gods in secret places. And David says, oh, You've asked me for faithfulness even in the secret places. And I'm wondering if there isn't 
a more subtle form of idolatry that has passed beneath the radar. It wasn't just that golden image in Daniel chapter 3. They could have said, oh, they're not worshiping your golden image. It's not just the visual, physical that we've wrote it off to be. It's not just the golden images. But they wouldn't worship the false gods of their culture. Not even in the secret places. And the most secret, what is David talking about? What secret place do you think he's talking about? The secret place of secret places. There's no more secret place than what happens in your mind and heart. David says, you've called me to faithfulness. I want to tell you a story, my own journey, and then bless you. Whew. Oh, my watch. Okay, I'm on Denver time. I thought 9.15, you guys have been... Whew. I didn't know I had that many words I could use even in a day. Let me tell you this story. Last February, I, uh, I have a study downstairs where I slip out the darkness of the morning for my morning time with God. And I slip out to, to pray one morning. February, so it's cold outside. I have a little lamp, I have my blank blanket that goes over my lap, and uh, just it's, I don't know. It's 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 cold and dark. It's maybe five something. The house is completely quiet. It's a beautiful time, and I've committed time to Jesus and I've done it for years so it's but the devil never gives up on that morning time so he does the same thing to me as he's done as he does to you and to anyone else he gets you I don't have I don't do my worship on on my phone or any computer because I just don't have the discipline people who can stay focused and that's praise God but I can't I one thing leads me to the next and pretty soon I'm reading an article about uh, baby elephants, and I don't even know why I'm doing it, you know? It's, it's a weird thing. I'll be praying, and then I'll remember someone stole my pencil in third grade, and where are they at, and what are they doing? You're, the devil works really hard in the mornings to make you remember and think about and be interested in crocheting and knitting, and, and what? You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's so weird you know it's a spiritual battle. It's, it's so, so strange. Anyway, I get an alert on my phone, pick it up. One thing leads to the next this February morning, and I'm reading an article. An article that I, uh, uh, the story I had, was already partly familiar with. A man just a few miles from our home uh, one night, uh, or early one morning, really, murdered his pregnant wife and then his two other daughters. It's a big story there in Firestone, Colorado, national news. Just a regular home like we lived in. I mean, the pictures on the news look like our street. And, uh, and so I knew this story. They had caught him. He had confessed. And now this article was his tell-all to the FBI. So I'm drawn into this. And I'm reading it. And I won't, I, I won't be so cruel as to tell you everything. But, but let me just... I'm reading his his story, and he's talking about his wife was away on business. He had put the two girls to bed. She came home sometime late that night, crawled into bed. They'd had a conversation that led to him losing it and, and ending her life in their bedroom. And then he tells in painful, 
ugly detail how he then took her body, put it in his truck, and went after his two little girls. And what they said to him when they woke up and when he started to do his heinous acts, what they were saying and what they were crying out. And, and at some point, I'm reading this on my phone. And beloved, I have a physiological response. I freeze. My muscles freeze. I can't breathe. It's as if the wind has been knocked out of me. I'm reading this story. I've got two little people sleeping upstairs in my own house. And I'm reading this story of this cruelty of a father to these little girls. And I, I can't breathe. I can't move. My whole but the phone drops out of my hand. And all I can think to do is, I, I need to breathe or I'm going to die. I don't know if, if it was five or six minutes, but it was paralyzed. <clears throat> I'm I finally catch my breath. I say to God, that's, that's terrible. That's terrible. How can a person do that? And God leans down and whispers into my ear. And says it's the same team that your protected selfishness is playing for. It's the same team as your protected selfishness. I didn't know. And he began to just lay out before my, my mind how I had excused things in my life because people treated me that way. Or because my wife was this way, I had the right to respond this way. Or because of that, I could, I could justify my own actions. And he said to me, Michael, that February morning, Michael, I want to talk to you about the little gods that are hiding away in the secret places of your heart and mind. I didn't. I had no idea that they were there. I mean, I knew that I was selfish, but come on. If, you, if you've ever met the people I have to work with, you, 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 it's totally understandable. Except to God. He said it's I, you can't explain it to me. You can't justify it to me because the Christian, the one who's living for me in the final plays of earth's history does not serve the little gods of this culture. The rabbis will actually read the Hebrew Words in the, in, the, in the second commandment, in the second word of the commandment, of the, of the Decalogue. They read it not as, thou shalt have no other gods, but thou shalt not have the gods of the others. Because in Hebrew, there isn't other gods to even consider. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. No, there's no other gods to have before him. Thou shalt not have the gods of others before him, before the God of heaven. And that's the stand that the three worthies took. And it's apocalyptic. It's the end of time. They play out what Daniel 2 did for the, for the kingdoms of this world. God says, while those kings exist, I will raise up my kingdom." You remember, we, we hung that on a hook in our mind. We've always read it to say, well, those kingdoms stop 
right when the stone cut out without hands. No, that stone cut out without hands is only the visual representation of a kingdom that God has already established in the time of those kings. There, his kingdom will already be growing. That is, during the time of these, the, the, the Daniel chapter 2 statue, God will raise up a movement that will play out Daniel chapter 3. They will not serve the gods of others, the culture where it's me first. And then Jesus stands up and says in his, in his sermon, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be taken care of. You don't worry about your health or your life even. They love not their life to death. Oh, sometimes we think, well, I can do that. But I, can, but I just can't let go of my selfishness. What do you think it's talking about, beloved? Daniel chapter 3, I believe, is a narrative prophecy of a people who will be raised up during the time of the end. Oh, Satan's going to hate them. Revelation tells us that. Like, Bab like that Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, whose countenance changed towards those three, there will be a change in Satan's countenance as he sees the faithful press on. Oh, he doesn't mind if you don't bow down to an image. As long as in your secret place, there's a little God. He's not worried about the golden image. As long as the gods of the culture have some place for us. And now the second word of the Decalogue has more to do with us as, a, as an end-time people than we've ever given it credit. Can I, can I close with this story? Let me, somewhere there's a picture Oh, let me, let, this guy, woof, this guy. Let me just read this, tell you a story, and then we're done. All right, quick, quick, quick. This guy, he's, he's funny. The Gods We Worship. This was written by uh, Ralph Emerson, right? He's the philosopher. He championed individualism, which is ironic that he then states this. The God we worship will write their names on our faces. Be sure of that. A man will worship something. Have no doubt about that either. He may think that his tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of his heart, but it will out. That which dominates will determine his life and character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. To the man who championed individualism, it's ironic. I want to jump to the end. There's a picture. There's a picture of a dear lady, Clara. She lived right here in Los Angeles. That's Clara bending over bending over the casket. Some of you may know this story of her husband, Joseph. He was a World War II and Korean War vet. He was a POW uh, in 1950. He was captured in Korea. 1950. They'd been married, I believe, three years. 1950, he was, he was captured in Korea. She was here in Los Angeles. Clara, since 1950, had everything ready for his return. Everything. She said he hated lawn work, so she, she had a, a landscaper take care of the yard since 1950. She would go to meetings with, with government officials and military officials to learn to see if there was any updates since 1950. This picture was taken in 2013 when Joseph's body was finally brought back. She said before he left, he told her, if anything happens to me, if you don't hear from me, get remarried. 
she told him, not on your life. And for 63 years, Clara stayed faithful. But never saw him alive again. They flew him back, his remains, back in 2013. And this is the first time she's encountered him. This is the first time he's come back. 63 years, his remains. And she said, she said to the news, the news agency, she said, I was, when I committed to him, I committed to him forever and for always and all of me. And I just played this little out, this story out in my mind. When I committed to Jesus, did I take it as serious as Clara did? Or do I, do I allow the gods of others to interrupt my life? Do I excuse them and Say it's such a little thing. Or am I faithful for 63 years? So no, I, I committed to that man. I'm not marrying someone else. We can, we can celebrate, we can honor that kind of commitment in a marriage. But beloved, God is looking. Daniel chapter 3 for a people that are faithful, who love not their lives to death. They will not worship the little gods of culture around them. Throw us in the fiery furnace. We don't have to be careful, king. We don't, you don't have to ask us twice. Father in heaven, the beginning of the Sabbath journey, could it be that Daniel chapter 3 there's a word to us tonight. You are seeking to raise up a faithful. Oh, the devil will be angry. But you, you know that in the time of those kings, you will raise up your kingdom. It is the sure word of prophecy. And the invitation tonight is, will we be a part of it? You're hearing from our hearts, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Those little gods in the secret places of our hearts and our minds, would you forgive us of? And lead us to a faithful place. And may our testimony, may our light shine to the world around us in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.